0: Hey, everyone. I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. I started my business, BIA, to help women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from bad cramps, irregular Periods, fatigue, bloating. Stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Corey Estrada, to our show today. Corey is the co founder of Risewell, a company that is disrupting the oral care industry with an all natural, sustainable brand that prioritizes safe ingredients and transparency. Corey got the idea of starting the company when she was undergoing fertility treatments and learned about the toxic and harmful. Harmful element found in our toothpaste, driven by her personal experiences with celiac disease combined with her IVF struggles. This led Corey alongside her former partner and brother to create these dentist formulated products that are free from harmful chemicals like fluoride, sulfate, and synthetic additives. Since its inception in 2016, Risewell has expanded its product line from toothpaste to mouthwash, floss, and mints. In addition to running the company, Corey is also the co-CIO and co-CEO at Axon Capital, an asset management firm based in New York. In this week's episode, Corey openly talks about how she struggled with perfectionism in the early days of the business, what she did to move past it, and how she deals with both the mental and emotional tolls of entrepreneurship. We also talk about how she's maintained her entrepreneurial spirit while having a successful career in finance, and how her experience has only helped propel the business forward when she launched RiseWell. She also explains the confusion people have about fluoride, why we should be treating toothpaste like food and how the brand eventually found its key ingredient on a personal trip to Japan. We also dive into her most difficult and impactful lessons she learned when launching the brand, the time and the many iterations it took for her and her co-founders to create the first product, and the steps she took to create brand awareness early on with influencers and dentists who became brand ambassadors and so much more. Welcome to the show, Corey. Thank you so much. Really excited to be here and have a great conversation with you. Yes. And I was just telling you before we started recording that somebody last week when I was interviewing for our health series, she was talking all about your brand. And I'm like, what a coincidence. She's going to be on the podcast soon. So I'm really excited, big fan of what you've built. And it seems like we have a lot of similar passion, so it's going to be a fun one. But before we go into your story, I actually want to talk about perfectionism. It's something that, you know, a lot of Women, people who are listening to the podcast, including myself, are managing and dealing with. And I know you mentioned early in the business that was also something that kind of held you back, maybe in different ways. So I'm curious, how has your relationship with perfectionism kind of changed over the years now that you've kind of been in the business for, you know, seven plus years?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's something that all founders struggle with. Um, and also, frankly, women, because I feel like there's this notion in society that we have to balance it all and, and do it all and, and not just do it all, but do it all really well. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's, uh, I, I certainly uh, knew early on, though, that I wouldn't do it all and I wouldn't be the best sort of at everything. Um, so I w- at least sort of recognize that angle of it. But I'd say as it relates to your specific question on perfectionism, I think one of the most important lessons I've learned with starting a business is the idea of embracing failure. And that's actually a bit of sort of the opposite of perfectionism. It's embracing the challenges and the bad outcomes as part of the process. And seeking perfectionism itself can actually be very destructive as a founder. And that was something really important to get used to early on was, We have to test a lot and learn a lot, and we will fail along the way, and that is okay, and we will eventually get to our goal, but it will not be linear, and it will be choppy and down occasionally, and then back up, and then down even lower than the time before, and then hopefully higher than the time before. But yeah, that's certainly been something that was challenging to learn, uh, but we wouldn't be where we are today had I... Um, been too much of a perfectionist so that was really important for us to learn quickly
0: yeah and I love that there's nothing like business to teach you these lessons right like yes. you launch and you're like, oh crap like we can't be perfect because things will naturally always go wrong that's just part of business so if you're able to your point to embrace that it makes the process so much easier and I feel so lucky you know I've had women I've had you know s- over 200 interviews so we're always hitting roadblocks like it's just part of it and I know that, all the women I've interviewed have gone through it and it's part of it. So it gives me a little bit more comfort that this is part of the ride and part of what we signed up for. So it makes it a little bit easier to navigate. But I love that you you know, quickly figure that out early on because I think there's so many people who are might be listening who have an idea and they're like, man, I just have to get the branding, right, the name, the website, the colors. And I'm like, just get started. Like you will figure it out as you go. And that's the biggest gift. So I, I love that. So I'd love to go back and talk about your upbringing. You mentioned from a very early age that you wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I'm curious, tell me more about your upbringing and maybe if there were perhaps like critical moments or critical people or family members in your life who may have influenced who you are today?
1: Yeah. So there's, I guess, a few things that I would say. Um, the first one, my... So I grew up in Newport, Rhode Island, very beautiful summer town, um, but it was actually great from a childhood perspective. My dad was in the textile industry um, and he... Um, Really, I mean, growing up sort of in the 90s, um, he saw the highs of the industry and then also the lows. I mean, the U.S. essentially has no textile manufacturing at this point um, as it's largely moved offshore. Um, So he had a pretty challenging career, but he he didn't have a college education, always worked really, really hard. Um, So I definitely got my work ethic from my dad. Um, but also I think perseverance as well because he had to persevere through some challenging times in, in the industry he worked in um, but he had interesting feedback for me when I was in college and he um, he knew I was sort of on track to go into finance and to me sort of as an, a, an undergrad at Columbia, uh, I was in New York City and I, I believe my parents dropped me off with like twenty dollars a week allowance which, I learned also very quickly, does not get you very far in New York. Mm -hmm. So I I got a job pretty early on doing kind of babysitting and tutoring. And then um, eventually got a job at an investment management firm uh, in my junior year of college and loved it and wanted to go straight into investing, um, but eventually would start in investment banking. And I remember my dad being really proud that I got this great job and I was going to be self-sufficient financially. But he also had concerns about me not finding fulfillment in that path. And specifically for him, every day he would go into work and he would see the fruits of his labor. I mean, literally in the factories, the the textile be printed and the different patterns, and he could really see the product of what he did. And he had concerns for me thinking that without something tangible to actually hold in my hands, I wouldn't see that, that same level of fulfillment. And I think that... Um, that kind of started the entrepreneurial bug in me. That question of creating something on my own was really important. I always had that seed in the back of my mind as something that I would want to do. Uh, I think it was also really important, and I'm sure we'll go into this later, that actually having that financial foundation was also really important for that journey as well. But he was a big part of it. And then I would say, lastly, you know, I had two incredible parents. My mom, she was a stay-at-home mom, formerly a special education teacher. And uh, she really taught me the importance of financial independence, um, being a woman. And I think that was something that sort of, she grew up, I guess, in the 60s. And women were became teachers or sort of stay-at-home moms or nurses. Those were the, essentially the career paths that she saw at the time. And And I remember kind of just always feeling like that was something that was really important to me to be financially independent given the opportunities I had uh, and something that she didn't. So those were two of the biggest influences, I think, that sort of started me off on the entrepreneurial journey.
0: Yeah, I love that. And it's so interesting because similarly my mom, I mean, she had a few businesses, but we're predominantly a stay-at-home mom. And she also put that in me and my sister's brain, like you oh, and my dad actually credit to both of them. Like you always have to be financially independent, be on your own two feet. That's super important. And as I reflect back, like, you know, also on my own journey, I went into finance frankly, because it paid really well. And like, that was a narrative I had in my head, like, okay, I'm going to be on my two feet. I need to be financially independent. I enjoyed it for a while, but I love that, you know, you also had this like entrepreneurial bug in the back because when I I was in finance for seven years and whenever I talked to people about my interest of wanting to take a leap one day or maybe working at a startup, like I wasn't sure then they would be like, well, you don't have like you're a finance person, like you don't have the background. And I was so confused. I'm like, isn't that a good thing? Like, (laughs) don't you want? someone who understands numbers but who's also like willing to learn and be scrappy, you know, and and has an interest. So, I just love to underscore that because if you're in a different field and anyone's telling you you can't be into it, it is possible and you're also living proof of that and um I love that. And it's also fascinating that your dad very early on, you know, as someone who has seen the ups and downs in business, you would think he would want his daughter to have a stable financially, you know, great job, but he's communicating to you that like, you might not be fulfilled. Like what a gift is that to have your parents will reflect that on you. Right.
1: Yeah. It's incredible. And it is, I mean, I think he definitely, um, was happy to know that after, and my parents paid for college and I feel super grateful, but they were also always made it clear that after graduation, that's the end of the financial support. Uh, so I think that that was he. He was happy that I I would have that in the job that I I received out of college, but um, there was always that wanting the best for me and the sort of maximizing fulfillment piece of it too, mm, that he that. hoped I would sort of solve in tandem, which is eventually what I did.
0: <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, it's cool to see that you're able to do both, right? You have, and which we'll get into a little bit later, cause I think it's super inspiring, but so I want to go back to your early, you know, finance investment banking days. I was also working in finance and investment banking and seeing people's health shift at the time, it was just, you know, normal. You just kind of work and you're like, oh, you're young and you don't realize these small nuances actually are like very impactful for your health. So I know you've been on your own health journey, but was that lifestyle shift when you're working in New York and in finance, did that impact kind of your own well being at the time looking back, I guess now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It did. It actually, Um, And this wasn't sort of directly to starting Risewell, but um, when I was in investment banking, I remember this is my, I'm in my early 20s and working crazy hours and not sleeping much and um, working really hard. And also keep in mind, like I start investment banking in 2007, which right before the global financial crisis. So it was also a a very educational is the nice way of putting it, but really intense time to be um, in that sort of side of the world. Um, and uh, so we were kind of working in, in insane amount, and I remember like uh, starting to get kind of stomach problems and I had red bloodshot eyes and my body was obviously not doing well at that point um come to find out I after sort of many doctors and many years uh, later that I had a gluten allergy and that mm-hmm. was the first time because I, I think I largely felt invincible for yeah. most of my life that. I felt like I can eat anything and do anything and sleep as little as I want and there's no repercussions that I realized that um, there was sort of this connection between the food that I ate and how it made me feel. Uh, I'm also half Italian. My dad, um, his family was, they were Italian immigrants and we lived off of bread and pasta. And so the idea that that's something I couldn't eat was also um, unfathomable at the time. But Um, you know, with just a few days, I remember my doctor saying, just give it a few days and see how you feel. And about two or three days later, I was a completely different person. And that was really the first turning point, I would say in my understanding of, um, you know, what I was doing sort of exercise wise and food and all these things really would impact kind of the trajectory from there. And that was part of the beginning, but it started with food and then eventually moved to personal care products so it it definitely you know and it's it's something that a lot more people talk about now i think the importance of health and well-being and i remember stories and you um you might too but of people from your annals class that had collapsed because they had worked all night and things happened i mean these were stories that were that were frequent um and it was just you accepted it as part of the job that this is what you sign up for and and there i think that there can be some good that comes from working that that hard out of college Um, but, but obviously it's not a sustainable way of being either.
0: Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use, we make it effortless list for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia, and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to Biawellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y A Wellness.com. And check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening. And now let's get back to today's episode. A break My heart, I'm always wondering how is it nowadays, like in in banking? Because there's a little bit more awareness, right, on wellness and health, but it's crazy. And the moment that you realize like what you do with your body, what foods you eat, and you feel the connection between how in a positive way it could impact you, like there's no looking back after that. I remember my moment and I was like, wait, what? Like I had horrible cramps horrible periods. And my doctor told me about this thing called seed cycling, which is now my business. And it it truly like changed my life to the point where I also started a business. Cause I'm like, how have we not been educated about the things we do can make us just feel significantly better without any birth control or medicines or, you know, whatnot, band-aids per se. So I love that you saw that pretty early. Yeah. Because those invincible days in your early twenties, they go away at a certain point. You're like, Oh crap, I need to sleep now. Yes. Change my lifestyle. So, so you're in finance for quite a bit of time. Tell me more about, you know, the inspiration for Risewell. I know it came a little bit later. It wasn't, you know, very early in your career, but would love to hear kind of the impetus for that.
1: Yeah. So, um, my husband at the time, John and I were, we were going through IVF. Um, and I, cause I had polycystic ovarian syndrome, which I didn't know until going on, going off of the pill. I was put on the pill when I was 18 and because I had no period and they said, this is sort of the fix at the time. Um, this is also, I mean, it's, it's wild to think about now, but doctors actually at the time had very little understanding of what PCOS was. Um, so I went on to the pill thinking that was I didn't even under, really understand why, but I, I was on it for about 10 years. Um, and the, we start about, started thinking about having kids and um, realized that I would need to go through IVF, which is, it's not the easiest process, but also it, it's really expensive. So you want to make sure it works. Um, so I think the two of us were really trying to do everything possible to make sure that we could do it once and hopefully not do it again. Um, and we, um, sat down with the doctor who was kind of walking us through the whole process. And he was actually, and I think this is probably, there's probably more doctors doing this at the time, but I think it's, it's really, it was unique then that, um, he said, in addition to sort of following the protocol and taking the right supplements to also make sure you're using the right products and eating the right foods. Um, and at the time I was already eating fairly healthy and, but I, I said, let me think about the product part of it. And we went home and we turned our bathroom upside down. And most of the products that we were using were not great. We had this app um, that I think is still around called think, Dirt, think Dirty. And you essentially scan the barcode on the products and it rates it how dirty it is or not. Um, so we threw most of everything out. We're able to find replacements for a lot of the products. And the one product that we, we struggled with was toothpaste. Which you might ask, well, why? Um, because it seems like there's a lot of good natural options, um, but the challenge having a dentist brother, who he's amazing, he's a dentist, a prosthodontist in Florida, um, and I had asked him like, what should I use? Should I use Toms? Like, what what out, what's out there that's both natural and and effective? And he said, look, you're you're better off brushing with water because essentially natural toothpaste take out the fluoride and they don't replace it with anything, so you're essentially using a flavored paste, which the the bristles are doing all of the work and save yourself the money. And that's, I think that was the moment that John and I said, there has to be a better option because we can't just be brushing with water. There has to be something better. And so that was really the moment that we said, we've got a problem to solve.
0: That really resonates with me. And it's interesting that you mentioned like you're completely changing your, you're eating well, but changing all your personal items. And even with some of these clean items, you think it's effective, but I, yesterday I was blow drying my hair and we have this air monitor in our room and it was really bad. And my husband's like, what are you doing? Like what's in your hair? And I was like, oh my gosh, it's all these clean who I, you know, I think it's clean, but it clearly is showing whatever's in my hair is really bad. He's like, if this is something that you do like for a long time, like this could cause serious damages. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, there's so many products out there that we think are clean, but a, are an, you know, aren't effective, like your realization with the toothpaste and also me with these hair care products. So it's definitely something been on my mind. But so you come up with this problem that you're having, you know, clearly you guys, you and your husband, I believe both at the time, both had pretty successful careers. I think was he in finance as well? Yeah, we both were. Yep. So you had this idea. I'm sure you don't have a lot of time to like work on a side project, but what were the next initial steps to kind of get this process going in the business when the idea kind of came?
1: So the two big requirements that we had before starting the business and the two of us, like, by the way, were always stewing and debating different ideas about starting a business and that um, and I met my former husband at Columbia. So we had been together for a really long time and we both always had this itch sort of in, in the back of our minds that. One day we'd start a business. It just we didn't have that that idea, um, you know, that we sort of had with this problem. Um, the two big requirements that that we had before embarking down this path was number one, it had to be extremely safe of a product. And what I mean by that, it was very easy for us to measure. It, it had to be treated like food, because a lot of people put things into their body um, twice a day, specifically toothpaste. And they think that by spitting it out, it's, they're not actually consuming it, but your gums are like sponges. So think of it as, you know, it's still absorbing a lot of that into your bloodstreams. That's why sublingual medications exist. You put them under your tongue, it's the fastest way into your body besides an IV. Um, so I knew that we had to treat this differently than how other companies thought about oral care products um, because people are consuming them two times a day. And so everything that goes into our products, We treat it like food. So that was the first requirement, which I felt confident that we could solve that piece of it. Um, The second piece, I don't think that we knew that that we'd have an answer right away, but it was we needed to create a product that was just as effective or more than the conventional products on the market. And Mm -hmm. interestingly, and you probably know this by kind of being in the space, that Um, there's so many times you have to sacrifice efficacy when you switch to a natural product. And I think the best example I always give is with deodorant. Uh, For people that think that there's going to be a natural deodorant that stops them from sweating, that's natural. It doesn't exist. If it doesn't have aluminum in it, it your your perspiration will not stop. You might smell better, Um, but you have to give up something by switching. And I wanted to make sure that here, when we were starting our, our brand potentially that we would have a swap that would be just as effective or more than what was already on the market. So those were like two fairly high bars. Um, And the second piece of it on efficacy, um, we were actually on, I believe one of us was on a work trip in Japan. And every time that we were sort of traveling, we were always checking out the the drugstores and what um, they were using for oral care products. And we started sort of searching some of the ingredients on the back of the toothpaste. It's obviously all in Japanese. And, uh, realizing that this hydroxyapatite kept popping up. And when we looked into it, um, realized that hydroxyapatite, it's, it was actually invented by NASA in the seventies. Um, and because astronauts were coming back and their enamel was actually weakening from being in space. And so they said, how do we chemically manufacture more of this? Um, they figured out how to do that in the seventies. And then the Japanese right away said, we need to put this in our toothpaste. So we um, have... 50 plus years of data from um, Japan predominantly using this in their toothpaste. Um, so it's about 60% of the market in Japan. They don't use fluoride in their water. So we really have like a, you know, millions of people control study to see how the efficacy compares um, to fluoride, for instance. Um, and that was really our, our light bulb moment because a hydroxyapatite, while sounding completely unnatural, is actually 98% of your teeth enamel. It's 70 plus percent of your bones, it's highly abundant in our bodies and completely safe. Uh, so it was at that point that we said, "We let's let's go for this because we're able to sort of solve both of those pieces that were really important for us."
0: Yeah, I love that, and I love the two you know aspects of you really focusing. I want we want to solve a better for you product that you can eat and it's consumable and safe, but you also want it to be effective or more more effective than the natural product. I think a lot of people you know, if they came up with that idea, they'd be like, crap, I I don't even know where to start. Like, you know, but the confidence that you guys have that there must be something out there. And I love the idea of, you know, seeing what other countries are doing. Like I also do that. I just go and I rummage around and I'm like, what are some ingredients they're using? So it's just, it's fun that, you know, you happen to have been on a trip and it was like right time, right place, Right inspiration. And that was like the, the great experience for you guys. So I love that. And did you have in terms of manufacturing, because it wasn't so well known in the States, did you have any hiccups finding anybody to use that ingredient in creating toothpaste or was it pretty straightforward at that point?
1: It was fairly straightforward. I mean, there's complexity to toothpaste specifically that makes manufacturing a little bit more challenging. You have to use five-layer tubes that the FDA requires, which only can come from China. I mean, there's kind of like weirdisms about the market that are unique. Um, We found this superstar chemist that we um, started working with early on who really helped us kind of achieve the perfect, because using um, more natural ingredients in your products and treating it like food, also has its complications. There's a reason why a lot of brands do the easy route and use yeah. more complicated things that aren't thought of as food because it it makes for easier consistency and um, the formulation is can definitely be a lot easier. Um, so we had our challenges in order to meet the requirements that we had. Um, but honestly those were were solvable by finding the right people. Um, so it was a bit of, and I'd say like our the DNA of our company is really we think of ourselves as nerds. I mean, we are. um, You know, John is an engineer, my brother's a dentist, and we all kind of bring a slightly different perspective. But to kind of circle back to your earlier question on uh, sort of background and, and working in finance and using that to our advantage, I think that also allowed for us to think about the business differently than somebody with, say, a marketing background would because the science and the analytical side were really, really important to us. Uh, And that, I think, is something that when you look across a lot of consumer brands, they tend to be branding first. And maybe science is in the top five of the qualities they care about. But for us, we couldn't create a product unless it was something my brother, the dentist, could recommend to his patients.
0: Yeah, I love that. And it's so interesting. Before hopping on this podcast, I was... Speaking at um, an entrepreneur accounting and finance class here at UCLA, my friend teaches it. And, you know, we were talking about how important it is to know your numbers, know your profit. And you mentioned, you know, one of the benefits of having that finance background is that you go into a business knowing the importance of that versus if you had a marketing background or a branding background. So I'm curious, kind of looking at you know, your experience as an, as an investor and in finance, what were maybe some of the key pillars that you're like, okay, these are two things we want to solve, but from a financial perspective or like a business model perspective, these, you know, few things are crucial for us early on to figure out before we go live. I think the most important thing for
1: us from a financial perspective was creating a business that was sustainable on its own. And I think, so we launched the business 2019 and in 2019, the idea that we would care about profits and cash flow yeah. were, I can't think of literally any other companies that uh, were thinking about that at Isn't the time. I mean, this is the height <laughs> yeah. of sort of the go-go bubble with, you know, all venture capital cared about was actually how fast your top line was, was growing. Profit was like, oh, someday that'll that'll come, but like, let's not worry about that now. It'll just impede growth was really sort of the mantra of the day. Um And 2020, you know, the year after was not much different. And so I think um, that was something really unique. And it's become more commonplace now for both investors and founders to think about sustainability and not from a good for the environment perspective, although we absolutely care about that. But from a can we survive without another venture capital check? Um, were largely self-funded. And for us, we wanted to make sure that we could run the business the way that we wanted to run the business and not be reliant on a large board of directors and um, sort of investors coming in to sort of save us in a year or two whenever we ran out of cash. So for us, that was really one of the most important pieces because it feeds into the ethos of our business as well, which is that we wanted to create products that were super, super clean, but also effective. And we had to do that in a particular way. Um, And that is something that could have clashed with certain investors, and we weren't willing to sacrifice on that.
0: That's true. I love that. And it's so fascinating that it wasn't a t- like like flow profitability in 2019. No one was talking about it. And I'm like, what? I mean, obviously the dynamics have changed now, but, um, and more people are focused on it, which is great. Cause that's like business fundamentals that everybody should be talking about. But I love that. And I'm curious, you know, you guys were self-funded starting out, you know, how are you thinking about creating awareness once you kind of got that final product, what were some ways you kind of got it out in the market that worked for you guys?
1: I would say in the beginning, the most important, um, piece of it. And and I'll start sort of with the foundational piece, which I think sometimes a lot of companies um, and for different categories, it could be different. But for us, uh, we both came at this from a lens of wanting to make sure that we had a differentiated story and not just for the sake of having a good story, but actually a story to tell people so that they would quickly understand why our products were better and different than everything that's existed before. Um, and I think that that's really key because a lot of times for us, since we weren't sort of marketing by background, we were both mostly, you know, finance by background, that we weren't just creating another red lipstick, let's say, where it's about the packaging, you know, if it works, that's that's a that's a piece of it, but people want something that feels good and makes them, you know, good a good look to it. Um, and for us, if it was something recommended by dentist, um, the patient's teeth couldn't fall out as a result. It really, really had to work. Um, and there had to be a story that went along with it that proved it we were really the cleanest and most effective brand on the market. Um, so that piece of it, like having that foundation, is really helpful for then um, economizing. And what I mean by that, the sort of the ad spend that a company eventually has to put out there in order to attract customers. It's a lot easier if you've got this story that makes sense. It captures your audience. They become loyal customers, too, which is another. The retention piece is obviously really important. Uh, and for us, finding those influencers in 2019 who who resonated with the story, who said, this makes sense to me. I want a product. It is going into my body that's super, super clean, but I don't want to sacrifice on e- efficacy because I don't want my teeth falling out. Uh, and then finding those loyal group of people to help get the word out was actually Really efficient from a marketing spend perspective uh, because it wasn't, we weren't in a sea of other products doing all of the same thing.
0: I love that. And, you know, you're going to an audience like dentists who really understand quickly, like, oh, this makes sense. Obviously, you need to have a great product to prove the concept, but they understand what you guys are doing and are able to push it out. So when you were talking about influencers, were you talking about like just dentists who, are able to kind of push your product? Or are you also talking about influencers, like wellness influencers and other people on social in the early days?
1: Yeah, so it was both. Um, I mean, we even went to dental conferences sort of early on just to sort of get feedback and thoughts. And and funny enough, and it's probably not surprising, but the dentists actually, they took longer to get up to speed and get their support. And partly because most of them were just not aware of hydroxyapatite. They learn about it in dental school. They know that your teeth are 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 your enamel is largely made of hydroxyapatite. They're familiar with with the concept, but not the application within products. Um, And because there's 50 plus years of data, and everywhere outside of the U.S., um, you can actually make claims that it's uh, anti-cavity. Oh, really? Um, The U.S. sort of has its own rules on um, doing clinical studies, which we would totally do. And we'd spend the 20 to $30 million in order to get that claim, but we'd have no proprietary ownership of it once that's done. So it's unlikely that any company would invest that amount of money not to be able to own it afterwards. Um, So that's part of the reasons, the little learnings of the trade. Um, But yeah, so the dentist, I think, took time to learn that there's alternatives to fluoride. Um, that have been around that are effective. We've got studies to prove it. And then eventually they got on board. And now I think it's the word has gotten out on hydroxyapatite. And so like the dentist you had on, on your show recently, um, they're aware of hydroxyapatite at this point. You know, we've sort of, I don't want to take full credit for it, but mostly done a lot of um, the explaining and education around that for, for the dental community. Uh, And the wellness influencers were a huge piece of it too. Like they understood the problem. They didn't want to sacrifice on efficacy. Um, And we were an extremely transparent company where we are scrupulous with every single ingredient that goes into each of our products. Um, And I think that quickly resonated with, um, you know, the wellness community out there as well. And so both of those pieces were really important for us to help spread the word. Because even at that time, like having a 5,000, 10,000 follower um wellness influencer, they have a very engaged, loyal community that listens to them, and so it was a way to quickly get the word out with a very low marketing budget at the time.
0: yeah, I mean, even now, which is wild because we you know when we launched, we had just people using our product and they're micro influencers like even let's say sub fifty thousand, and they're so influential in their Community that the impact is incredible. And we've had a lot of bigger influencers talk about us. And I'm like, the return that we get just organically from the smaller influencer is incredible. So it's cool to see that you kind of built the foundation of your business kind of going that route. And it is, you know, it is interesting to shift the perspective of these dentists who are taught something specific in school and you're coming with this like innovative ingredient. They're probably like, what are you talking about? So I'm sure that also took. Like you said, you were pretty much at the forefront of educating them along the way, uh, which is fascinating. I, I love that. That's super interesting. And I'm curious, was there anything that you guys did looking back at those early days, which actually wasn't too long ago, that you wish you could have done better, maybe any mistakes when it came to marketing or approaching influencers or getting it out there. That you know you just kind of learned along the way.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a few things sort of in the early days. I'd say to kind of um, piggyback off your point about the larger influencers. I mean, honestly, the the times where we would try to invest in what other people told us to invest in, being the flashier sort of influencers, and then also. Honestly, the marketing agencies where they claim to sort of do it all and propel your business and you you spend tens of thousands a month to do that. I mean, honestly, it was was when we sort of took the reins and did things ourselves that we had the highest returns. And I think that's true for a lot of people and a lot of businesses where you know the story, you know the customer better than anybody will. um, And doing it yourself um, can be a much more powerful route. And with the larger influencers, I think it's that they don't engage with the brands, at least in our experience. And it sounds like potentially yours too, um, in the way that you need them to, and and their followers are following them for maybe fashion advice or, you know, just celebrity gossip or whatever the reason is. Uh, and where, whereas the wellness influencers, they're truly a trusted source for their audience on, what products they, they should use because in the same way that, um, we actually self at Credo, um, Credo has been a great partner for us because they do very intense screens of every single ingredient that a company is, is using. And to your point about hair products earlier, um, they, you cannot find a hairspray at their stores. And I'm always like, I just, I just need a hairspray. I'm going to curl my hair. I just need to hold it in. And they're like, there's this, you know, um, I think it was a powder or a gel. They're like, you can use this, this like meets our requirements. But if it's an aerosol, like we don't do any aerosols because they're bad for you. And, and it's helpful for a consumer to be able to go in and say, I trust this place to have curated the products in a way that I know that they're going to be clean and safe. And funny enough, oral care, which they didn't get into until until more recently, um, is really like, you know, one can become obsessive, which I am a little bit about like, doing everything healthy and eating the right food and using the right products and having the right carpets and you know the air sensors like i have all that stuff too um but honestly the the top thing is like what is going actually into your body and toothpaste is a part of that whether or not people like that idea it is Um, so your skin's actually a decent barrier and so if one is sort of finding an area to focus on it's what goes in your body is really kind of the the top of, of what matters um, on the scale of sort of where you should focus on.
0: No, it's so true. And it's interesting because I didn't think too much about it until like recent, you know, maybe the past year I was switching all other stuff, my makeup, my hair stuff. And what you mentioned in terms of like, you're ingesting the toothpaste. We had a toxicologist on our health podcast. Obviously this is her world. And I was like, all right, what would be the few things that you would do to change you know, early on. Cause obviously we all can't change everything instantly. It takes a process. Right. And she was saying anything that is like in your mouth or around your mouth. So even like outside of toothpaste, your lipstick, right? Like I, you know, I have yet to convert over all my makeup, but now I'm like, all right, I'm going to make sure whatever touches my mouth, I'm going to be very mindful of. So yeah, it's something that people don't think about is toothpaste. And also Floss, right? Can you maybe share more about what's in the conventional floss and what we need to be mindful of as well?
1: Yeah, um, it's a great question because I think a lot of um, people are not aware that things like floss and also um, things like tampons and other sort of personal care products, the FDA does not require companies to disclose ingredients in those products.
0: Oh, it gets me so mad. (laughs) I know, it's it's
1: a crazy concept. Um, But we, as we are with all of our products, we actually put the ingredients right in the back of our floss. So there's no sort of hiding anything that's in our products, but, um, the most harmful thing is essentially, uh, a Teflon like derivative that's in floss. So I won't name any specific names of brands, but, um, there's a brand that glides between your teeth and that the, that gliding mechanism that's in it is essentially Teflon. And um, that's what allows it to easily sort of go in between the cracks of your teeth. But what's problematic about that, as we discussed earlier, your gums are highly absorbent and literally wedging Teflon into your gums where, where all of your teeth are twice a day, if you're flossing that much, hopefully, um, then that's do, is, does become very problematic. Um, natural flavors are not actually natural. So what yeah. is in that, the companies don't even know. That's why we steer clear of any natural flavors that are not actually natural um, because we couldn't be a transparent company and say to the world, um, we know everything that's in our product, but we don't know what the natural flavors are because the company won't tell us, but we think that they're natural. That's, that doesn't cut it um, when we treat our products like food. So I'd say that those are some of the big culprits in floss, but you know, Teflon being the worst of it. I mean, it was, it's not allowed to be in pans anymore, but people can use it in their floss, which is a crazy I can't concept. believe
0: it. Oh my gosh. And I used, I know what you're talking about. And I actually really enjoyed it from a gliding perspective. I used that floss for years. So it's crazy to even know that. Wow. Wild. Yeah. And look, toothpaste,
1: unfortunately, is not much better. I mean, the, um, even just, I mean, you're probably aware of sort of SLS, which is the foaming agent that's in toothpaste. It's toothpaste should not foam. I think that's like a big misconception. Um, there's things in conventional toothpaste, uh, ingredients like triclosan, which the FDA actually banned in hand soap because it was causing cancer in lab rats. Um, so you can't find it in hand soap anymore, but the, uh, toothpaste lobby was nice enough to fight for it to stay in toothpaste. So you can still find it in toothpaste. Um, but so it's, it's things like that, that we, we can't treat it like food. If we include those ingredients or so propylene glycol, it's the main ingredient in antifreeze. Fluoride is a neurotoxin. Uh, you wouldn't want your kids swallowing copious amounts of, of toothpaste. So, like the list is long, and I think toothpaste has always gotten a pass from people because they spit it out. So it's fine, and they, uh, and, you know, smartly, a lot of the companies put the ingredients on the box, and you throw out the box, and you're left with the tube, and you you never will know what the ingredients are unless you've saved the box, which nobody does.
0: That's so interesting. That's wild to even think about. Oh my gosh. So many things to consider, but so glad you've created a better for you alternative there that we can actually use that's effective and tastes good and is good for you. And you have kids options, which I love because yeah, thinking about kids ingesting that like breaks my heart, you know, and, and kids are swallowing it at, you know, when they're young, they don't know what they're doing to spit it out. So I feel like it it just, it blows my mind. It's so crazy. Well, the, the,
1: the interesting, like just thing to add to that, which is really fascinating about hydroxyapatite specifically is dentists would love for you to be able to keep your toothpaste on your teeth overnight, like copious amounts of fluoride on your teeth. But there's a reason why it it says call poison control on the back of your toothpaste. And Um, It also says to spit out your toothpaste because you can't leave flora, tons of it in your mouth overnight. That's just not okay from a safety perspective. Um, With hydroxyapatite, since there are no safety issues, you can have it um, stay longer on your teeth with just the longer the contact it has with your enamel, the more that it can help to rebuild your enamel because it's a crystal. And so there's really awesome applications to it because there are no safety issues. So you can take globs of it. And if you have a tooth that's becoming sort of a cavity is happening down the road, like it can actually help to fill in sort of these pre lesion spots that could eventually turn into cavities. And there's no safety consequences to doing that. I mean, you could even put it in your aligners at night. I mean, it's
0: it's a a cool feature that you just can't do with something like fluoride. Mm -hmm. I love that. And one thing that you mentioned, this was the biggest adjustment for me. And I kept asking my husband like, so is it working if it doesn't foam? Like literally I'm like brushing my teeth. I'm like, is this thing working? But it's, you know, it's an adjustment. So it's crazy to understand the back end around foaming. And, you know, obviously it's not critical for dental health. It's actually worse, like you were mentioning. So that was an adjustment, but now I'm totally you know, sold and um, see an impact with these cleaner versions and what you guys are building. So I love it. I want to transition over, you know, you are incredible in so many ways. You are, you know, you have many different jobs. You're the co-CIO of Axon Capital. You're also the co-founder of Risewell and you're a mother, you know, three very important jobs. I don't like the word balance, but I look at you and I'm like, what are maybe some of the, the secrets to managing a full plate and a big life, right? Everyone who's listening in right now on the podcast wants to do what they're passionate about, you know, do it all, have a family, you know, including myself. So what are some ways that you've kind of ebbed and flow in your life to get like a good combination of these three very important things in your life? if that makes sense. Very long-winded way of asking. Yeah,
1: no, it is. It's, it's a really good question. And honestly, I mean, this goes back to actually your first question about perfectionism. I think the two questions are inextricably linked in that I have just like I've recognized that I am not going to embrace perfectionism with everything that I do. It's, it's actually accepting failure, honestly. I mean, I, there's many areas in my life and it's not just with Risewell, but personally and professional and other areas and in investing that I've had setbacks and what, you know, others, maybe myself would deem as failures. And the truth is, is like, I'm not going to do it all. And I'm actually okay with that. And I think that's given me a lot of peace to know that I don't have to do it all. And there will be times when maybe I'm a great mom and I'm not doing a great job as an investor or, and, and that, that's just a part of accepting having a full plate is recognizing that just like you have to embrace failure and starting a business, that doing that, I think, for for the rest of your life as well. And that doesn't mean to strive for high sort of goals and to achieve, because certainly that's something I think that I feel very strongly about and hopefully instilling that upon my kids. But I mean, my co-founder who uh, I was married to and we are now divorced. We are great business partners. We're amazing co-parents to our five-year-old son, Leo. And that sort of happened while we were starting Risewell. Yeah. Um, and so we've had our our, our, our share of, um, you know, moments of recognizing we, we're not doing it all and, and having moments of failure, but also recognizing that's part of being human and also taking challenges and risks. I mean, I, and that's not just a, a business thing. I mean, I think one personally has to push themselves um as well in order to keep moving in an upward direction again not linearly but in you know hopefully over time ending up higher than where you started
0: yeah oh so many words of wisdom that you just mentioned there i love that and what's so interesting just going back to like being comfortable with failure what i've also just reflecting back on you is you don't really judge yourself, right? Like whether it's a business perspective or if you're being a good mom, but maybe not a good investor that week because something came up or whatnot, like you're just going with the flow versus judging yourself like, man, I didn't get that right. Or, oh gosh, I'm like horrible at work because this week was just like a tough week per se. And I think that's a narrative we can all get to if we're not you know, perfect across the board, but it's not humanly possible. And to reiterate what you said, if you want to have a full plate, you have to be super comfortable with that. And, you know, that's something I still continue to work on. And, you know, both me and my husband have our own businesses. We don't have any kids yet. So I just know I got to get used to this and being comfortable because I'm sure adding kids on top of that is like a whole other layer, you know, and you literally were pregnant with Leo when you were launching Risewell, which is so interesting. And, you know, actually a lot of women on the podcast, which I find fascinating, start their businesses when they're pregnant, like, or when a kid is very early. I mean, what were maybe some of the opportunities there? You know, you have this young newborn, you're launching a business. Like, how is that experience?
1: Well, I mean, I think that this all came about from, you know, going through the IVF process. And so we always, John and I are always joking that, I mean, this is our second Baby is our business, and I mean, a lot of people sort of say that, and and it's it's really true for us. I mean, he, you know, Leo was born, and Riswell was born shortly thereafter. Um, but I think that was an advantage. I mean, certainly for me, in the sense that it helped to spur an idea, and also, I mean, I think for both of us, we had this strong desire to create something. That I mean, legacy is probably too strong of a word, but we wanted to create a business that was durable and would be around for a really long time It's something to, that, you know, to be sort of a, a guide for Leo on kind of what he can achieve and do. And, um, and we're sort of in a fortunate place because we're not relying on outside capital where we could see his business continuing in its, you know, current sort of iteration. I mean, obviously evolving along the way, but, um, but staying within the family for a long time, which is a, a really nice, Place to be because I think a lot of people are not fortunate to be able to do that with their businesses.
0: Yeah, no, totally. No, I love that that you guys are majority owners, self funded, and you know you have a why behind the business, which makes juggling it all a, maybe a little bit easier because you're passionate about it. But totally resonates with you saying you have two kids. Leo Ryswell, you know, Bia, my business is my first kid. I care a lot about it, you know, but it's it's so true. And, you know, I want to end on something. In another interview, one of these articles um, that you had a Q&A on, you mentioned something, and I'd love to just read it out and, you know, get your thoughts on it. You wrote, starting a company is as much emotional as it is mental. It will test you and all those intimately in your life in unimaginable ways It is so accurate and really resonates with me as I'm reading it, but would love to hear maybe your perspective around, you know, what does it mean? Like when you were saying starting a company is as much emotional as it is mental, because I think we don't talk enough about that piece. For me, it's a lot of
1: sort of the mental piece of it is the wherewithal that is required. Because when I talk about embracing failure and understanding that perfectionism will not exist that concept is is a mental one in that you have to um, fully get behind that concept mentally and be able to trudge through those moments of failure that uh, some would sort of at that point be like we tried and we're done and yeah. keep going. I mean honestly th- that's what it comes down to And the keep going part is it's a mental concept where like you are, you know, I've got this and this, I'm going to look back on this and reflect. And it's not about like, um, not judging yourself, but it's actually using those opportunities to, to reflect, like, what did we do wrong here? What can we do better? How can we improve this? Um, and then trying to do better the next time and then maybe failing again and failing 17 more times or however many it takes, but being able to have the mental wherewithal to continue going despite having failures and setbacks.
0: I swear that is like the secret sauce. Like you can have a great idea, execute. Well, I'm like, if you can just honor your mindset, have that mental wherewithal, like you mentioned, that is really what's going to keep you in the game. And like you said, you know, it's so important for you to have a sustainable business that's run well to have it, you know, majority of most of your life, you know, hopefully pass it down to your child. And having that mindset is so, so key. We actually had something happen and pop off in our business yesterday. And, you know, my husband reminded me, he's like, how can you take this breakdown and make it a breakthrough? And it's so simple, but it's like sometimes those simple words actually just help put things in perspective. And it's like, all right, like this could be really bad. A lot of people would probably freak out, but what do we need to do to make it work? And, you know, that mindset piece is just so, so key. So I always tell people, if you could foster that in any way you can, you know, even before Before you start a business, it could be so, so beneficial for you. But Corey, this was amazing. I'd love to ask a last question. You know, what is next for Risewell, or what is getting you excited about what you guys are doing, or, you know, maybe in your life, it could be personal, professional. Would love to hear it.
1: Yeah. So we've got um, a bunch of exciting things happening at Risewell, which, um, you know, continuing to sort of increase our partnerships with dental offices is really important to us. We, launched our mints and our professional line um, last year, which was really exciting because the mints, uh, you know, to have the hydroxyapatite, which is totally safe and to be able to put that in a mint form, which can also be used um, if you want to sort of take it on the go for toothpaste, you can do that as well. Um, so it's a very good sort of portable option if one is traveling or not. Um, and the pro line is essentially a higher percentage. We use both the natural form of hydroxyapatite and then also um, the synthetic version, which has a smaller crystal size. So it helps to get into the sort of the tubes for teeth sensitivity um, even more, which is great. So both rebuilds the enamel and helps with um, sensitivity, which a lot of people have, especially if you've been teeth whitening at all. Yeah, so those are really exciting. And we have new new product uh, launches on the horizon as well. Trying to, continuing to um, embrace failure and, and try new things um, as, as well as sort of be a mom to five-year-old and a one-year-old um is always keeps life interesting and then investor by day I mean I, I'm still um have a day job
0: so <laughs> I love it and you also have a blog that you post your I was like this woman is amazing <laughs> <laughs> it was actually the
1: blog was sort of created mostly for like immediate family and friends they'd always be like what's that recipe I want to know and yeah and over the years I mean after having sort of finding out i had a gluten allergy uh wanted to sort of put pen to paper and jot down all the essentially take unhealthy recipes and turn them healthy. And that's my, um, my third job, but it's not a job. It's just for fun, but I I love it. And I love cooking so much.
0: Yeah. I love it. Well, Corey, it was such a pleasure to have you join us today. Big fan of you and what you're building. And I'm so excited for everyone to just learn more about you from today. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you again. This was a great conversation.